1: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 24th, 2022, the Deep Sigh edition. I am David Flotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C., a rainy Washington, D.C., all week as Ketanji Brown Jackson stared into the dead eyes of senators, and then went out into the rain afterwards. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning. Hello, John. How are you?
3: Hello, David. It's also rainy here, but we don't want to... It's going to be sunny when people are listening to this. That is true. It's going to be an absolute ray of sunshine, no matter what the weather around them is.
2: And a living ray of sunshine, who is herself bathed in sunshine, Ruth Marcus, Washington Post (laughs) columnist, sitting in for Emily today... Ruth, welcome back to the GabFest for the nth time. Hello.
4: Hi, good morning. I am not bathed in sunshine. I am bathed in the odd light of the Washington Post recording booth.
2: It does look like you've been anointed, that you're an enunciation <laughs> and, and in, of some sort.
4: Indeed, I am here at the GabFest. Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> just, yeah,
2: she's surrounded
3: by black with a pin of golden light on her on her on the top of her head. It, it is, in fact, looks like she's been illuminated by the Great Awakening.
2: This week... The Senate Judiciary Committee meets Ketanji Brown-Jackson and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are just as irksome as you would expect them to have been. Then how can, how should, how will the war in Ukraine end? And will it end anytime soon? Then new domestic abuse and child abuse accusations against Missouri Republican Senate candidate Eric Greitens. Will they derail his campaign? Why are there so many abusers or people with unfortunate relationships towards women running for office these days. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. So my favorite moment in the KBJ confirmation hearings this week came on, I think it was Tuesday, when Ted Cruz presented Jackson with a blown-up display of a book that Cruz says is taught at Georgetown Day School, a school that Jackson serves on the board of. I don't actually remember even what Cruz is talking about or what Jackson's response was, just that she began the response with a sigh so huge and audible that it actually made it into the transcript I saw as sigh. It was wonderful. <laughs> this was this was classic Supreme Court confirmation hearing theater in this era with Ted Cruz occupying a TV camera in his lizardish way, throwing some preposterous far-fetched attack on Jackson that was clearly racially coded and definitely had nothing really much to do with how she is as a as a judge or potentially as a justice. So, Ruth, the Senate hearings, the, the committee hearings have wrapped up. How did they go for Jackson and for the world's greatest deliberative body?
4: They've wrapped up for Judge Jackson after this just really punishing marathon of 12-hour days of – answering these sigh-inducing questions, and it really was the sigh heard around the Judiciary Committee. And there's a little bit of wrap-up. The American Bar Association will declare her extremely well-qualified, and others will praise her or semi-criticize her. This was not a confirmation hearing where the outcome was in doubt going into it, and it will not be in doubt coming out of it.
2: So, John, Josh Hawley, and and then other folks outside of the hearings made claims about her being soft on pedophiles she was sentencing. And others, others implied that she, as a defense attorney, went beyond advocacy for her clients to something more nefarious. And then, there, of course, there was this association by Ted Cruz and others of her with critical race theory because she is black, I suppose. What were Republicans trying to do here? Presumably, it's not. they don't think they're going to take down her nomination. What was the point of all that?
3: Right. Well, first, we've got to just establish the fact that these hearings are really and even since their inception have never been about getting to the bottom of the judicial views of the person who is being questioned. So that goes back to the to the first times they started in the, in the, I guess, Brandeis was the first to have a hearing, he didn't even show up. uh, But when when Wilson nominated him, Brandeis was the first to have a confirmation hearing. And then there have been a series of, you know, the history going through that has basically always been in a a political context. My favorite is Felix Frankfurter in 1939, who was who had defended in a book, Sacco and Vincetti, the anarchists, and said basically they were railroaded because of anti-immigrant bias. And he did, in fact, show up. And then he just basically said, my record speaks for itself and wouldn't say anything more. So in that political theater context, if you took a look at what Republican voters care about and then drew lines back to the questioning, you would see an interest in criminal justice. The, the Republicans care a great deal more than Democrats do about what they see as a crime wave. And in fact, crime numbers have gone up. They also obviously are um, concerned about uh, what's being taught in schools. And if you look at the at the, um, concern about racial issues in America ameliorating the issues of race in our society has gone down as an issue of public concern by about 20% since a year ago. So it's both they're driving the questions towards things their voters care about, and they're also not uh, stopped by any fears that charges of racism will hurt them because the public's not as concerned about those issues. And we're going into an off-year election where your base is more important than a kind of more general election. And many of the people who are engaged in this questioning are trying out for a presidential run in 2024 or trying to do what they can to set the table for the 2022 elections, but it got quite nutty. I mean, Marsha Blackburn asked Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson, imagined a scene in which parents at Georgetown Day School would have stopped her and asked her about this about this book. So in other words, it's not just not talking to her about any judicial opinion she had or might have, which is the normal boundary of things, but it's basically saying to her about an imagined conversation what her opinion would have been. It got really far out on the edge of basically trying to create a political moment for the benefit of the person asking the question.
2: So Ruth, Judge Jackson, like all of these nominees, has been well-schooled in the art of saying nothing very much and saying it at great length. That said, was there anything that she said or did during the hearings that actually stood out to you? Was there anything that it was memorable from her as opposed to from the senators.
4: From her, and I'm actually going to um, now put on a little bit my former Georgetown day school mom had, um, <laughs> full disclosure, because my kids went to school there, and um, so I know something about its history. I thought, for me, one of the, in addition to the sigh, the moment when Ted Cruz was waving around the books and asking her about this school, which, by the way, doesn't seem to be that much woker than Ted Cruz, the private school that Ted Cruz sends his daughters to. She started talking to him about why Georgetown Day School, which, of course, has really nothing to do with um, one's fitness to be a Supreme Court justice, but she happened to school him, as it were and why Georgetown Day School might have an interest in wokeness. And the answer is that it was founded in 1945 by a group of parents who wanted to make sure that their children could attend, yes, integrated schools, because the schools in the District of Columbia were then segregated by law and there was no integrated private school in the district. So they created one. So take that, Senator Cruz. I kind of like that. I also was touched by the moment when Senator Cory Booker started to talk to her about what an incredible role model uh, she offered to black women in America and really to all America. And she teared up that I, I was quite moved by that moment as well.
3: Cory Booker, if you think about this purely as a political thing, his speech about what her nomination and looks like obvious confirmation means In American history and in the history of black Americans will be passed around for, I would argue, months after this hearing. And so if that's the goal of what these hearings are about, which is to create a political moment that encapsulates something for the values and people you believe in, it seems to me that Booker basically won the day by a pretty big margin in a way that was not dissimilar from what Lindsey Graham did for the purposes of his party during the Kavanaugh hearings.
4: I'm going to concur in part and dissent in part, if I may, to John's just... To this is Justice part of the Di- secret
2: docket. This
4: is yes, the secret docket. shadow docket um, to Justice Dickerson's uh, assessment of the utility and history of the hearings. I am old enough to remember when judicial nominees actually were able, though at their peril, to discuss their their judicial philosophy, i.e. Judge, not Justice Bork, was pretty forthcoming about his views on constitutional law and ended up being defeated, um, not with a filibuster, but uh, by a majority vote with six Republicans voting against him as well as Democrats, all, uh, all but two Democrats. These hearings have I think there's a very consistent downward track in terms of since Bork, what we have learned about judges and how they have been used. And even after Bork, even with Souter and Clarence Thomas in the first phase of the Clarence Thomas hearings before we got into Anita Hill, um, even with Justice Kavanaugh in um, the first round of his hearings, you have been able to use these hearings in the past, increasingly less, to get a sense of the mind and, to some small degree, the judicial outlook of these nominees. Some have been worse than others. Um, Justice Ginsburg, no hints, no suggestions, I'm giving you nothing, name, rank, and serial number was pretty bad. But you, you could get some sense of how they went about thinking about cases this hearing was really different in that way. This hearing was about her sentencing and her alleged um, leniency and, um, uh, for child pornography. But it, the, in, in addition to the really bizarre Georgetown Day School critical race theory questioning, which you know clearly would not have been asked of someone who uh, was not black. Some of the questions were just really outrageous, and we need to stop and uh, address them. When Senator Graham asked her on a scale of 1 to 10 how she would rate her faithfulness, The look that she gave him, it wasn't audible, but it was withering. And you have to, you know, you really wish they're all told, whatever you do, don't lose your cool. Don't rise to the bait, because especially if you're a black woman, if you rise to the bait, it'll just be angry black woman all over the place. I'm not supporting that. I'm just saying that's the counsel that she gets. But, you know, you really wanted her to say, Are you kidding me, Senator? You know, I'm going to – the only person who's going to judge my faithfulness is God. So give it a break. When Marsha Blackburn asked her, what is a woman – And, you know, can you define what a woman is? And she said, I'm not a biologist. And then this was taken up by Republicans and repeated by, I think, Senator Cruz as evidence of her slipperiness instead of evidence that she was smart enough not to rise to this stupid bait that had zero, has zero to do with her fitness to be on the bench.
3: All of that is true. But my point, the Bork point affirmed is you can't say what you believe. I'm also still not sure that even in Bork's case, the hearings themselves represented a net increase in understanding of the judicial philosophy of the people who've been nominated. Maybe people who didn't know about it before got educated, but I'm not sure that there's been uh, a great uh, wealth of information that's come out of these hearings. Well, no, it it
4: was many years ago that Justice Kagan, when she was Professor Kagan, wrote about the hearings as a hollow and vapid charade. Um, so I take that point, but mine is that these are, mater- I think, materially worse.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, the, okay. so so are the politics. The politics are materially worse, too, and therefore this takes on the awfulness of the age. Also, my other favorite person who declined to ex- express something was Scalia, who said he wouldn't uh, – except whether Marbury versus Madison was settled law, even though it would have been settled in 1803. <laughs> so if people think this, this idea that you won't t- offer an opinion post-Bork, who was obviously savaged by Kennedy, but, um, uh, or some people would say Kennedy just illuminated what he believed, but he also, in answering the questions, turned out to be uh, incredibly arrogant, which is probably, in the end, what lost him is six Republicans more than, than anything else.
2: Speaking of things not being settled law, we had a Indiana Republican Senator Mike Braun saying that he didn't think that Griswold versus Connecticut, the sort of right to privacy and and a birth control case, or Roe v. Wade, or Loving versus Virginia, the ruling that barred laws against interracial marriage. He didn't say that any of those really was settled law or they shouldn't have been settled law. The Supreme Court shouldn't have gotten into it. Ruth, what is going on with uh, I think Blackburn also said that Griswold versus Connecticut is not should, was wrongly decided. She what is going on? She said it was on?
4: poorly poorly reasoned. <laughs> um, what's going on is very interesting. I you have to think of the most controversial decisions of the Supreme Court in the areas of reproductive rights and gay rights as a kind of Jenga tower. And in that Jenga tower, the block that if you pull it out, the whole edifice falls down is Griswold versus Connecticut. So if you pull out Griswold versus Connecticut, which is a 1965 case um, involving the right, imagine this, of married couples to obtain contraception, and it is the baseline of privacy law and the right to privacy and the contours of the Constitution on which the general right to contraception, eventually the right to abortion as long as it lasts, the right to um, have sex with the person of your choice without fearing criminal penalties, and ultimately the right to marry the person of your choice, no matter the gender, is built. And so this burgeoning attack on Griswold is really fascinating in the context of the right is about to, I think, I fear, get the victory it has been seeking all along. It is about to get the victory on abortion. Um, we'll know in a few months what the Supreme Court does. On the verge of that victory, should they declare peace with honor and leave aside some of the other related questions that the court has decided, most notably gay marriage and now this, what's going to be a continuing conversation about how to balance transgender rights in particular against uh, issues of religious freedom? I think the as a political matter— conservatives would be smart to declare victory and go home because gay marriage, for example, has not created the kind of political social firestorm that was predicted even by the justices. But the burgeoning attack on Griswold suggests that they'll want to march forward.
2: Do either of you think that Judge Jackson will receive any Republican votes?
4: Hmm. One or two.
3: Great question. If, If this is a theater review of her performance... It's, it seems to me has to be done in the political context because this is a political event. And so in that sense, she didn't give a Republican that I can see, partisanship being what it is. Um, there's probably no upside.
2: We have Slate Plus segments on the GabFest, of course, bonus segments every uh, every week. This week, I think we're going to talk about what we consider our strangest behavior and what have others told you is our strangest behavior that we don't think is actually strange at all. So go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Get bonus segments on the GabFest. Get member-exclusive episodes and get no ads on any podcasts, unlimited reading on Slate, all sorts of great stuff. Slate.com slash GabFest Plus. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? By visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
5: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you.
2: Russia invaded Ukraine one month ago today, four weeks ago today, because of the short February month, and the world has changed an enormous amount in those 28 days. Russia has been amputated from much of the world's financial and economic system. There's been an astonishing, almost universal surge in support for Ukraine from the democracies of the world and lots of other non-democracies, too. A recognition that the fight of the Ukrainians for their values should make us want to fight to cherish our values as well that the values that they are that they are standing up and fighting for against a, an autocratic brutal invader are values that are important to us and we need to defend at home there's been a mass migration of 3 million war refugees including half of all Ukrainian children who are largely being welcomed in Europe and there's been a total shift or a huge shift in the posture of Europe towards its own self-defense and its own energy security. And there's been a lot more. So, Ruth, what is, I think, most surprising, though, to many, to me, certainly, because I'm an ignorant person, is how quickly the war turned into a disaster for Russia, even it is a, an utter tragedy for Ukraine. But it, it is, the war has not gone at all as Russia expected it to.
4: Well, David, I don't know how to phrase this, but you don't have to be an ignorant person (laughs) to be surprised um, by how poorly the war is going for Russia. I think that um, all of the um, U.S. intelligence and other intelligence estimates of the Russian army and the likely Russian performance uh, were that Kiev would be taken within five, six, seven days at the outset, and that everybody overestimated the russian capabilities and determination and military power and or or if not power ability to exercise that power and underestimated the i'm really am opposed to this word but i'm not coming up with a better one pluckiness of the ukraine people and the ukrainian military forces and the ability of president zelensky to Summon his country. And so no one expected a month into this that we would be at this terrible, horrific moment of watching these massacres and war crimes in kind of real time. But that's a kind of shocking, sad piece of good news, because what everybody expected was that the conflict was going to be effectively over and that Russia would have prevailed.
2: I mean, the thing that really strikes me watching this war is, is that destruction is so easy and cheap that you have a Russian army that has effectively been stalemated. They have, they have not achieved the ends that they sought, whatever their plan are, has failed. And yet they are day after day causing enormous amounts of death and destruction, reducing, you know, leveling a city, Maripol. Am I pronouncing that right? Leveling it. I mean, that's like leveling Cleveland, they're reducing huge swaths of Kiev to to rubble, and it's just pointless. Like it's for a, for, it's just terror. It's just so pointless. The, the pointlessness, just because of the unnecessary stupidity and violence and brutality of Vladimir Putin. It's a war of one man that is destroying a huge amount of society, and not. And he's and he's losing it, and it's just, it is maddening to me.
3: I think. Mariupol is one of those words where we can't pronounce it correctly without sounding like we're getting up on our high horse. Somebody, I think the correct pronunciation might be Mariupol. Oh, well. Yeah. So to your question, David, the biggest person who was wrong was Vladimir Putin, which is, you can imagine, and he's punishing the generals who told him things that maybe, you know, didn't turn out to be true. But the core belief of his that was totally wrong was that the Ukrainian people would fold because they weren't really Ukrainian people. They were really just, as you once put it, this scrap of Russia. And that's where the failure is right in the heart of his gut. And what I wonder is, and as you mentioned, stalemate is is the the fact on the ground. But that doesn't that that means, according to the military an- analysts, more carnage and awfulness. Not st- even though the Russians aren't advancing, it'd almost be better from a human life standpoint if they were advancing because uh, this will be brutal and ugly. So the question is, what does that mean for what pressure does that put on Putin to search for? next alternative i
2: mean i think the the thing that puzzles me ruth i'm interested in your take on this is humiliation is a potent it is the most potent emotion it is it humiliation really drives people when they feel it and putin has been humiliated and humiliated people lash out so i worry about where he is headed what he russia cannot win but russia can certainly do terrible things to the world and and do you have any sense that putin has a has a any kind of end game or even middle game at this point.
4: No, no. And I think that um, from everything that I understand, you're completely right to worry. Um, Humiliation is a driving force. And um, you couple that with Putin's uh, innate and increasing, it seems to me, grandiosity, his vision of himself as the recreator of Russian greatness, not just reassembling the Soviet Union, but reassembling the kind of czarist greatness of Russia. And we know what he's capable of, because we saw what he did in Chechnya. It's been very complicated. And we been thinking about, people have been thinking about this from the start, to figure out his exit strategy. You have to give somebody the exit strategy because of the need to save face and avoid the humiliation. He did make this terrible mistake that John says he put himself in this position. It was foreseeable. And his willingness to continue to um, escalate is just scary because it summons things that really were unimaginable six weeks ago
2: what do you mean unimaginable six uh, unimagin-
4: weeks ago? I, I'm t- well i guess chemical and biological weapons were not unimaginable six weeks ago because we've seen them elsewhere um the leveling of a european country i guess was not unimaginable because we did see um chechnya the leveling of a region but i'm talking about tactical nuclear weapons and the Potential collapse of the deterrence, philosophy and practice that's obtained since the, the first use
2: right I mean I think that I guess because because Putin's army is conventionally has proved so weak that you do want to show off the thing you're good at, and I assume the Russians are still good at nukes they they were they had a good run there for a while, and it is terrifying to think that that restraint that's held for seventy five years seventy seven years. Is yeah, I, right and now. I,
4: Just to be clear, I am not predicting it. It's this. I don't think this is a likelihood, but it is within the realm of possibility right. in a way that we haven't experienced within our lifetimes. And we're all pretty old.
3: And also, even if things go better, I mean, the, you know, the, the supply lines that appear to be cut, there was a Ukrainian counteroffensive, um, which appears to have um, uh, cut the supply lines on the march to Kyiv. Um, which rec- which represents I think a difference in the thirty days we 've seen, which has mostly been defending against an assault this is a this is a pushing back um, which which speaks to the weakness of the Russian effort, which just takes me back to what Hr McMaster talked about, which is all of the failures that we 're seeing in the Russian military are if if even let 's imagine putin quote unquote wins somehow by doing one of these awful things. the Russian military has shown. An inability to operate in this uh, capacity, they will not be able to hold the territory because it relies on all of the stuff that we're not seeing discipline. Uh, secure supply lines, motivated troops, all the rest of it, which means the future is dark, even I mean, obviously, the, all the things Ruth mentioned, which are being discussed, are incredibly dark. But after that, it's even uh, in- incredibly dark in terms of, of where we are right now. And we should just add to the table of horrible cyber attacks. Biden this week said uh, that Russia was exploring options for a cyber attack. And he told business leaders that they should uh, do whatever more they can do to secure against damage because they Expected an uptick in cyber attacks from Russia on the West and on the U.S.
2: So Biden is gathering with the NATO leaders, with the G7 leaders, and the European leaders are gathering this week. And and there was this sort of the headlines in the paper today where Biden, you know, tries to rally and and it, this notion that that he's got to go rally. But is it does he have to make an effort to rally the Europeans? I feel like they're pretty rallied, Ruth.
4: Well, they're pretty rallied, but he has to do a few things. One is that he has to show increasingly that the United States is willing to step up and do its part because he announced this morning, or is about to announce, I believe, that the U.S. is going to accept 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. That is um, both the right thing to do as a moral matter, and that is a really large number because our current goal, which we don't get to, but our goal t- for total refugees in a year is 125,000. So this would be a dramatic acceptance rate and a very good thing for Ukrainian refugees.
2: Eric Greitens was the governor of Missouri. He resigned four years ago after being accused of imprisoning and raping and photographing a woman against her will naked uh, he is now running for Senate in in Missouri to replace to succeed Roy Blunt, who is retiring. It's a seat that Republicans ought to hold, and Greitens is the leading candidate. This week, his ex wife Sheena Chestnut Greitens, who divorced him after the sex scandal, although I think they were they stayed together a bit after the, the the scandal, the the rape and assault scandal he was accused of, has filed an affidavit as part of a custody dispute accusing Eric Grytons of abusing her and physically abusing their young child as well, and pulling their child by the hair, throwing Sheena Chestnut Grytons to the ground. It's really a weird and terrible story. Gina Grytons, by the way, John, I don't know if you remember, she was a guest on the Gapfest during pandemic. She's an academic. She's a scholar. Yes. Gosh. Great, great oh guest. Gosh, that's right.
3: She was on to talk about China-U.S. relations from UT Austin.
2: Bruce, why is Grytons... Why was he even in the race? Why was he, this guy, who was (laughs) credibly accused of truly a brutal, terrible sex crime four years ago, forced to resign in disgrace from the office of governor? Why is he the leading candidate for Senate in this state, in a big state?
4: Um, You're asking me to um, imagine a mindset of entitlement um, and absence of responsibility for past behavior that's unimaginable to me how and when you know that you have are in the midst of or at, a brutal divorce and that if you're soon to be or is she absolutely ex-wife um, makes these allegations against you that her allegations are gonna have more than a whiff of credibility because of what you've already been accused of why you would put, among other things, your family and children through this. This just goes to a mindset of entitlement combined with a sort of burning ambition that seemed to turn Eric Greitens from Democrat to Republican that puts him and his career at the center of everything and just believes that he is immune from the normal consequences of human behavior. And um, note to Eric Greitens, he is not.
2: So Roy Blunt and Josh Hawley, who are the current senators of Missouri, both Republicans, both, well, Josh Hawley, a very conservative Republican, Roy Blunt, pretty conservative Republican, um, have both said that Greitens shouldn't be in the race if the allegations from Sheena Chestnut-Greitens are true. Although it's amazing that they didn't think the other scandal involving Brighten's disqualified him but they do say that they, that this scandal disqualifies him. The Republican Party is not not a safe haven for child abusers and domestic abusers. Will that get him out of this race? I mean this is a this is a seat the Republicans cannot lose unless they completely screw it up and you could screw it up by nominating somebody who was perceived as a child abuser and domestic abuser, right?
3: Well, yeah, so Missouri Trump won Missouri by 15 points. So it's a state that's quite red. the danger the worry is in part that he could lose the seat which is a safe seat and and the uh you know republicans only have to win one seat and they've got a pretty good um uh, to take back control and they've got a pretty good map for them a lot of opportunities and they have joe biden's approval rating uh, is fibrillating around 40 percent And historically, when a president's approval rating is that low and you have chronic issues like inflation out there and uh, other things that are going to motivate your base, it's looking good for Republicans. But the problem with Greitens is that he is so cinematically awful, he creates a story that bounces out of Missouri and what Mitch McConnell, who is trying to make himself the majority leader again, worries about, and he talks about this a lot, is the 2010 races. And if you ask him about it, he will list the, the candidates, O'Donnell, Angle, who ran in 2010, who all lost because they were so outside the mainstream. And that that becomes an issue Republicans more broadly have to deal with when they want this off-year election to be all about and a referendum on
4: Joe Biden. I think that's um, particularly a threat for Republicans because Eric Greitens is not a unique candidate of Republicans in terms of being accused of abusing uh, women and of, of, of abuse towards his wife. There are a series of them, um, um, beginning most notably um, with the former president, uh, who have been similarly accused. And last I heard... Uh, Women were not happy about hearing these kinds of things and voted in greater proportions than men. And while there's always going to be a gender gap between Republicans and Democrats, I think, um, this is not helpful to Republicans. Mitch McConnell must be tearing his hair out.
2: But so so you cite, of course, former President Trump. Trump had more than two dozen women accuse him credibly of sexual assault, sexual harassment. Uh, and his former wife. And and his former wife, uh, you had Roy Moore, not accused of domestic abuse, but accused of pred- predatory behavior towards children. Herschel Walker, Senate candidate in Georgia, accused of, of sort of sinister, stalking-type behavior towards women, including, I think, towards uh, his ex-wife. Um, why do you think... Is there, Do you guys have a... Is there a lot of this... It, it, is it just that a lot of men are abusers and some of them end up running for office? Or is it that somehow politics and particularly Republican politics at this moment is welcome, is a place that, it, that is a safe haven for this kind of behavior because of the kind of Proud Boys hyper-masculinity of the GOP base that has emerged in the last few years.
3: In the Republican Party, they became habituated to and um, marinated in during the Trump years habituated to basically excusing what would have been inexcusable before and repeatedly and constantly. And in fact, a a structure that wasn't just permission, but that, that caused you to gain favor in the party if you could mint new excuses for behavior before that would have been objectionable. And once you'd learned to do it for Donald Trump, you can learn to do it for other candidates. And why do you learn to do it? Back to our first topic. Because you want just a warm hand of your party voting for your Supreme Court nominee. So I think that you have a basic shift in the way politics exists that might allow for more of this. And then you have the other thing, which is just you have the opportunity to take control over the Senate again, and uh, and with a weak president and a narrow margin, uh, and that would encourage people to make all kinds of excuses as well.
4: And David, I guess I would distinguish between general men behaving badly, male politicians behaving badly behavior, and abuse behavior. The general male behaving badly behavior is a totally bipartisan phenomenon. And to be in politics is to be an egomaniac. And it means that you crave adulation and you crave adoring crowds and you crave people adoring you. And that as a spillover, I think, into sexual behavior and the need for sexual gratification. At the same time, you have, and increasingly as you prosper in politics and get ahead, you have a sense of entitlement. And so you you see that in all these incredibly stupid things that men do. This is not to justify any of that. It's just to kind of explain it. But then you veer into things that go beyond um, unacceptable, immoral um, behavior from infidelity to harassment into, you know, actual physical abuse, which does seem at the moment to be a particularly phenomenon of one party. And that explanation, I would not venture to. Come up with a rationale for explanation for beyond what John suggested, and beyond this sort of we just support our guys no matter what. But you can see in the response of both Holly and Blunt that there are lines that can't be crossed, and I hope that becomes very clear well, in the right situation. They
2: can't be crossed until they're crossed, right? I mean, Trump was a line that couldn't be crossed, and then it was crossed because it was it became convenient. There are for lines to that cross.
4: shouldn't be crossed. Yeah.
2: But I do think I mean I think there's this there is we cannot look away from the fact that there is a performative sexualized mas- masculinity in the Republican Party now the Proud Boys in, embody it uh, but it's this it's this lionization the men who go to war the men who stand up and fight the, the that there is this and some of it is is fraudulent some of these are men who who don't in fact stand up and fight but there's a there is a Republican tolerance and license for this kind of bullying and, and sort of alpha alpha behavior that wasn't there in the bushes or in Reagan. It was, that was not their MO. I mean, there are plenty of reasons to, to, to disagree with what they were like as, as men, I'm sure, but that was not there in the way that Trump gave, allowed this, this kind of um, id, this, this loathsome id that so many men carry around to be, let out into the world, loosed into the world, and and rewarded. That is a phenomenon of one party, and it is it is it's gross and it's dangerous. And I think you can also see it like in what's the name of that guy in Montana, G- Greg Junforte, right? Yeah. Who's the mm-hmm. he's the gov- he's the governor of Montana, now, but he beat he beat up somebody. He just beat somebody up, uh, a reporter. And, yeah, a reporter, and was rewarded for it. Like this is not a this is not some sort of like little side hustle that is happening uh, in bits it is a is a fundamental aspect of republican politics right now and it's really disturbing
4: david are are you overstating this because other than donald other than donald trump um and okay take greg gianforte hitting a male reporter is different than hitting a woman or by the way hitting your hitting a three-year-old across the face um really uh we have yet to see and I hope we won't see um, serious allegations of spousal abuse or abuse, uh, physical abuse of other women um, being rewarded in the way that you're suggesting.
3: Well, also, I agree. And also, what if all these candidates lose and what if, you know, what if Greitens in this case is a, a disaster? I mean, it, you have gotten a rallying from Republicans for him to get out of the race, which would suggest a, a, a rejection uh, within the party of him. And also, you ha- I think one other distinction to look for is, I mean, you've had abusers in the Democratic Party. Eric Schneiderman, the, the attorney general in New York, was in the state Senate before he was attorney general. He was an abuser, but he resigned immediately uh, under pressure. And so that's somewhere to look for distinction, too. It's not whether these characters i mean i I take what you're saying david and there's always been a republican party of sort of the idea republicans fashioned themselves as the daddy party and democrats were the mommy party and there was this john wayne macho you know let's have uh, clint eastwood speak at our convention kind of aspect that was then increased exponentially with all these aspects we've been talking about under donald trump but it's the thing to watch i think for is is whether any of these people can can survive these these abuse allegations
2: Let's go to cocktail chatter, uh, John Dickerson. When you are having a spring, a welcome to spring cocktail, a julep. I don't know what the spring cocktail is at the Dickersons. I'm sure it's a really good thing. Uh, the spring what are you be cocktail chattering is the about? same
3: as the the spring cocktail is the same as the winter, the summer, the fall cocktail, which is um, just gin. Um, <laughs> I have multiple. Chatters First is that um, some local news. Dana Stevens, our wonderful colleague who's on the Culture Gab Fest, is going to be featured on Sunday morning, CBS Sunday morning. I unfortunately am not the correspondent, which is very sad, but Cameraman, her book about Buster Keaton is um, the subject of a piece this weekend. So people should go check that out and get a full dose of Gab Festery. The second part of my chatter is a shout out to Mark, lovely guy who stopped Anime and me on the street as we were out walking. He's a GabFest fan. And it just, there are many GabFest fans and who have done this over the last few months. And um, Mark was particularly lovely, lovely comments about the show. But it was in the middle of a walk. And this is a very David Platzian chatter. And I hope I haven't actually stolen it from you, David. But there's a story in the Times on Thursday about walking. And how people have use the pandemic, as David has, to further embrace their love for walking. So it's really cool, and there's lots of great examples, and it's and it's something I think we should all do even after the, the worst part of the pandemic is over. But what I loved about the piece is, and, and all of us came up in journalism in an age where you would read trend stories and sort of society, things happening in society stories, and you'd wonder, huh— Is it true that everybody's really eating Play-Doh in the morning for energy? I don't really know anybody doing that. And there would be a paragraph in the the story that would say, while evidence of anyone doing this thing that I'm writing this whole story about is non-existent, this single anecdote of a person who's barely doing what I'm claiming the whole (laughs) country is doing, nevertheless proves that this is happening everywhere. So those stories were all the time. But what's happened in the digital age is there's now an app for everything. And so in a piece that talks about how people are walking, there's now something called City Strides, which is a website that um, you can use to track your progress in walking every street in your city. And so this piece has this paragraph in it that's just so full of data. 32,000 of its 43,000 total users joined the site since the beginning of 2020, which is about the time COVID-19 comes in. So, and worldwide, 1,500 of the users have completed the task of walking or running down every street in the city since the start of 2020, making up three quarters of all users who have done so since the site launched in 2013. So you have actual data about the thing, and it proves the point, which is since 2020, three quarters of these of these city walkers have done their walking compared to the previous seven years in which only a quarter of them have, have done the completed route. It's a great story about the beauty of walking, but it also... It gives you a complete sense of that this thing is actually happening.
2: I'm going to go download that app. Ruth Marcus, what is your chatter?
4: Um, well, my chat, and but I want to say I'm, I'm going to go look at that app also. I think one of the things that's contributed to walking is the ability to measure it because we now have in our phones and on our fitbits and everything else we, we walking can be competitive like everything else in our lives so we know how many steps we have and uh in my office we, there's like groups of competitors who try to outdo each other's steps um That's my a good point. Uh, my chatter like uh Johns is about a colleague of mine, Christine Emba, who is a columnist at the Washington Post, who has a new book out called Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. And it's about the kind of dreariness, I guess is the word, of what seems to be modern young people sex, which is that it's not fun. And it's, um, Don. you sometimes agree to sex because you don't want to be impolite, or she has this gruesome story in the book about a woman who has met a man who seems quite lovely and he really likes her, um, but he chokes her during sex. And she asks Christine, who she doesn't know, she's just being interviewed, um, is that okay? Um, She's kind of questioning about it. By the way, if you don't think it's okay, you should be speaking up. Um, And so I think all chatter about sex is good dinner party or cocktail chatter because it gets people's attention. And I think Christine raises something and writes about something. You can read um, an opinion essay from her at the Washington Post, but even more important, um, you can buy her book. Just raises a question that's really front and center for a younger generation of people whose attitudes towards sex really, I think, they need to spend some time. I'm sorry to sound so old and grumpy. Uh, rethinking it,
2: and also the app, of course, um, City Sex, where you measure the number of <laughs> no. sexual partners you've had, and since 2020, it's gone. Well, <laughs> Let's
4: hope not or down.
2: My chatter is about a book uh, that I've been reading, "The Last Days of the Dinosaurs" by Riley Black, and it's about the death of the dinosaurs after and almost everything else on the planet when an asteroid struck Earth 66 million years ago. And it's just, I mean, this is a, this is a story that's been told in different ways in different places and, and, and uh, in science and in popular culture. But this is a really, really engaging account of it. It looks at the actual strike, the, 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 in fact, the immediate aftermath of the strike in Hell Creek, Montana, and what literally happened to the various animals that were there of different sorts. And then what happened a month later, what happened a year later, what happened a thousand years later, a million years later, how our ancestors survived, and and then all the things that were lost. It's a really well-told book. And I also want to just point in a, in a totally self-aggrandizing uh, way towards a podcast by a former Slate colleague of ours, T.J. Raphael, who used to be work on Slate Podcasts. And T.J. now has a podcast called Biohacked, which is looking at the reproduction industry and She's looking at various stories of assisted reproduction and reproductive life gone awry. And one of the ones that she's told and she's telling this week in the fourth episode is about the Nobel Prize Sperm Bank, the repository for germinal choice. I wrote a book about this some years ago, and, and I kind of narrate this story that uh, is in her podcast. So check it out, Biohacked. Listeners, you two have got chatters. You send them to us at, at gabfest on Twitter and you email them to us at gabfestitslate.com. This week, we have a great listener chatter from Eric Jason Martin.
0: Hello, GabFest. I am Eric Jason Martin, and uh, I am an audiobook narrator. I have actually narrated a few of the articles that have become cocktail chatters before, uh, including John's most recent piece in The Atlantic about Truman. I want to very heartily recommend, in this week's New Yorker, Retirement the Margaritaville Way. You've heard of the song You probably know about the restaurant chain, but did you know that you can now literally live in Margaritaville? For this feature, writer Nick Palmgarten embeds himself in a new Jimmy Buffett themed retirement community in Florida called Latitude Margaritaville, the first of three in the nation and counting. It's an astonishing article. It's funny and crazy and sad and poignant all at once. Reading it, I really started to consider for the first time how I was actually going to spend my retirement years. Would it, in fact, be with a cheeseburger in paradise? Perhaps not. But it did drive home that a sense of fun and community should be important at all stages of life. Plus, it comes with a wicked little henry style surprise ending that I did not see coming. You can read it or listen at The New Yorker or on The New York Times app.
2: Wow, Eric Jackson Martin really has a voice of an audiobook narrator. He does. Yeah, he
0: can even make my stories
3: sound decent. That was
2: amazing. (laughs) And Nick Palmgarden is amazing, too. That is our show for today. The Gapfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at SlateGapFest. Tweet chatter to us there. For John Dickerson and Ruth Marcus, the always, always wonderful Ruth Marcus, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Question. What do you consider your strangest behavior? And what have others told you is strange behavior, but that you don't think is strange at all? So who's going to go and get deep?
4: Oh, Well, I'll go. All right. I I like
2: the the tone of Ruth's voice is guessing this is is going to be great. This is going
4: to be so disappointing to everybody because I'm not sure it's going to really pass the strange barrier. But it's been on my – and it just shows how um, boring and vanilla my life is. But um, uh, my strange behavior is – and I've taken it up during the pandemic, is knitting during meetings. Um, I never had the guts to knit in public before, say, during Washington Post editorial board meetings. But I found during the um, advent of Zoom that it was very comforting and calming and actually help me concentrate on the conversation rather than looking at my email during Zoom like everybody else to be sitting there with knitting needles. Um, If you're very good about it, you can kind of keep the yarn and the needles um, below the screen so that people don't see it. But it has been viewed and it has been commented on by some of my colleagues. Um, I have not had the gall to yet or the guts to do it in person, but I'd really like to. And I'd like to point out that among the, um, I don't think she did it on Zoom, but among the fellow knitters that I have is um, Madeline Albright, who just passed Mm -hmm. away, the Secretary of State, who said that she spent a lot of the pandemic knitting socks for her family members.
2: I think that's a lovely habit, and it's not strange. I well, not think it's, it's strange. It's, it's not I think strange it's a nice to do habit. it.
4: It's a little strange. No, I've gotten a lot of grief um, from my colleagues for doing it in public.
2: And your colleagues are losers.
4: Well, don't <laughs> say that about my colleagues. They're all <laughs> lovely. Um, they just seem to think that perhaps, perhaps is <laughs> not the most professional of behaviors.
2: Yeah. Bridget Emily. points out. Yeah. Bridget's pointing yeah. out that Emily did that, made her way through law school knitting.
3: And I think she still does do it. Yeah, Uh,
2: I
4: didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Yeah,
3: Yeah, I think that's... uh,
4: I told you it was going to be disappointing, but it's the best I could come up with because, you know, not choking anybody during sex or things. (laughs) Sorry.
2: (laughs) That is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash GapFest Plus and become a member today